Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Anthony Gibbons, the man behind Lagonium. In this episode, Anthony chats about how he hit upon the idea of teaching people Latin by utilising Lego, how the project has grown over the years thanks to social media, and the publication of Lagonium Season 1 in book form. As Anthony discusses, surprisingly, he didn't actually have much of an interest in Lego as a child. It wasn't until the appearance of Star Wars Lego, particularly Boba Fett's Slave 1, that he got hooked on it. We also talk about Bella Sacrum, the card game he has developed with former guest of the podcast Laura Jenkinson, which allows you to pit Roman gods and goddesses against each other in battle, and what he's learned from test driving it with his students. Incidentally, if you'd like to get your hands on the Bella Sacrum game or Lagonium Season 1 book, you can do so by entering the Lagonium photo competition. The brief is to take a photograph using toys and other things that you have around the house, posed in relation to one of three categories. One, Roman history. Two, Roman mythology. Or three, a Latin quote or original sentence. In Latin. Entries will be accepted from October 21st to 31st, so head over to the Logonian website for more info on that. As we talk about on today's show, I already got my idea sorted by recreating the image of Mithras slaying the cosmic ball with Star Wars figures. Just got to dig out the right Star Wars animal to fill in for the ball. Taunton, maybe? The Rancor? Jabba the Hutt being slayed by Princess Leia? Hmm. Anyway, as you've probably already guessed, this is a full-on nerd episode, so strap yourself in and Chewie, punch it. big Lord of the Rings fan or was it just one of those things where you're in New Zealand and you thought well we have to go see it because it's such a big uh, attraction now well it was it was more the latter Um, I mean I I enjoy the Lord of the Rings um, and the Hobbit but uh, I was um, thinking about uh, getting away for a week Uh, it was the beginning of the school holidays and I've got a couple of friends in New Zealand so that seemed like a good excuse to go over there I'd uh, not been to the North Island before and um, I couldn't imagine going there and not going to Hobbiton Uh, so yeah, I, I took myself to Hobbiton, and it's it's fabulous. It's um it's like walking around the Shire without hobbits. Uh, it doesn't have the feel of a movie set about it. It really does have the feel of, you know, what you would imagine the Shire would look like if you were able to sort of just sort of take yourself there and wander around. Oh, nice. I've never I've never been to New Zealand. I barely got out of Europe at all, which I need to do. But <laughs> one day, one day, because I did look into your background where you explained about yourself on the uh, Lagonium website. And am I right in saying that growing up, your main interest initially was Star Wars in that regard, in terms of, I suppose you might say franchises? Yeah. um, I mean, Star Wars, uh, I I wasn't lucky enough to see it at the cinema. Um, I saw The Empire Strikes Back at the cinema, but it was something that was really big around, you know, our, certainly my group of friends um, were all big Star Wars fans. Um, my good friend Jason had Star Wars wallpaper and a Star Wars Duna. Uh, but we all collected the little action figures and things. Um, and, I, you know, I try and um, squeeze a bit of Star Wars even into the Latin Lego stuff that I do. I mean, there's a whole range of Lego Star Wars figures. So I've, you know, translated bits of the Star Wars film into, into Latin and posted them up there. They're usually quite popular. Yeah, my parents were very lucky that they kind of missed that stage of Star Wars Lego. Not that I'm too old for it now, but uh, <laughs> I actually, well, I still haven't got myself any Star Wars, like proper Star Wars Lego sets, but I keep meaning to get around to it, although they are ridiculously expensive. Because I was 
still in primary school when they brought out the special editions uh or they did all the cgi changes to them uh to the original trilogy so i actually saw all the original trilogy for the first time in the cinema and then obviously subsequently the the prequels as well so growing up I, i was an avid collector of star wars of merchandise mainly figures but pretty much everything else as well in fact actually Recently, I was recently my parents came down to Canterbury to visit, and I asked them to go through the loft and pull out a load of the boxes with the stuff in because I am actually kind of at a stage now where I'm like I have to do something about it because they just have these boxes like full of Star Wars figures and ships, and they're just kind of gathering dust now. And I need to I need to do something with them. I don't know if I'll sell them or, or do something else with them. I'm not sure, but I need to work out what to do with them. Although that's the problem, like they've sat in boxes for so long and then my parents bring them down to me and I open the boxes and I'm like, Oh, this is so cool. Uh, <laughs> you suddenly, suddenly you're like, I can't let go of any of this stuff. I don't want to let go of my ridiculously random figures of like that bounty hunter who's standing in the line with the rest of the bounty hunters from empire strikes back. Bosk perhaps IG 88. Oh yeah. Yeah. Degna as well. Is it De- Degna is the other one who's got the, the wraps around. And then yeah, there's that's right. Four, Four Lom is another one. And yeah, with the big fly the eyes. Um, so yeah, there's yeah. Boba Fett, Four Lom, Dengar, uh, IG-88, and uh, Bosk. I think that's I think that's the five of them. Because I started reading as we're going on a big tangent now. So I remember reading, like, when I was younger, I used to read a lot of the Star Wars um, like expanded universe novels as well. I remember there was like a Wars of the Bounty Hunters uh, book series. They did like three books, which I, I really enjoyed as well. As Like most people, like, I, you know, Boba Fett was my favorite character growing up because people always say like he doesn't actually do anything really in the films like and when he does do something it's not that great but it's that whole kind of mystery that you know that he could do something really cool and it's almost like your mind fills in the blanks about what he's capable of. (laughs) I love that nod that he gives uh, Princess Leia when she's dressed as uh, the Boba the bounty hunter Um, that's just in the Jabba's palace he just kind of gives her this nod and it's very cool. Yeah, because they're um, they've got the the Mandalorian TV series coming out soon as well, haven't they? On uh, Disney Plus, which is actually going to have IG eight eight in it in it as a character as well. Oh, um, so I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not sure how that's coming out here. I, I don't think we have Disney Plus yet, but um, we've got all the Star Wars films on a on a you know pay pay to play station called Stan, so maybe it'll be on there. We yeah, are on yeah. a tangent, aren't we? We really we really are. <laughs> Because well, I mean, because the, the interesting thing is because you you kind of outline this on your on the website, but then as you say, you weren't really aware of like I mean, you're obviously aware of it, but you didn't really like Lego wasn't a big part of your childhood, and it wasn't until later on. I mean, am I right in saying that your first actual Lego set was Slave One Boba Fett ship? Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I was. Um, this was also my first uh, Rusticadio, uh, which had the um, spoken Latin um, immersion that I attended in America. And as I was coming back, I saw a Lego store and popped in, and I bought this Slave One. I think I, I might have mentioned this on the on there as well, but I it, it sat up in the top of the cupboard for years and years and years and years. In fact, I think I moved house three times, and I took it with me each time. Um, but the box wasn't even cracked open. Or maybe I, no, I did. I built one bag and I just didn't really enjoy it all that much. But then when I found out that uh, Disney had bought Star Wars and there were new movies coming out, I pulled it out of the top of the cupboard and started building it. And it was a pretty stressful time at work. And I just found it very relaxing and very sort of meditative to just follow instructions 
Um, so after I finished it, I was over at a friend's house and she's a bit of an enabler. So she convinced me to buy the Millennium Falcon and it all just kind of went from there. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest. I'm, I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> the one I would love to get is the, uh, the the Star Destroyer was always one of my favourites. I'd love to get my hands on a Lego Star Destroyer. I think I need. Yeah, you have to treat yourself. I think at some point I'm just gonna go out and buy one. I was just gonna say uh, the one that they've just released. Um, it's like you know one thousand two hundred dollars or something, and it's got six and yeah. a half thousand pieces, and it's I think it's as long as a, a dining room table. Maybe you should treat yeah. yourself when you when you do the five the big five zero when you do your fiftieth episode you should uh, take yourself out and buy yourself a star destroyer. Yeah, I think I should do actually, man. That's living. That's that's the way to celebrate. <laughs> that's the way. Um, so that's what kind of really started to expose you to Lego, but now here we are, a number of years later, and you have this thing, Legonium. What is it? Could you could you outline for me exactly what Legonium is? It's it's a meeting of Lego and Latin, but what is it, and how did that come to be? Um, it it sort of grew gradually, um, and there there's a, a museum here in Sydney called the Nicholson Museum, um, and Michael Turner, who was the head curator at the Nicholson Museum, he's now moved on, had the idea of getting a Lego. Now, I think the first one he did was an Acropolis, or, uh, but he's had an Acropolis, a Colosseum, and a model of Pompeii built out of Lego by a local Australian fellow by the name of Ryan McNow. And they were very, very popular. And I used to go up to this model with a friend of mine, and we'd just kind of spend half an hour just kind of pointing out things to each other and talking about what we could see uh, in Latin. Um, and it was just a really sort of fun experience and a good way to practice our spoken Latin. And I bought a couple of these uh, buildings, these Lego buildings. I think I had a bank and I had a restaurant and maybe that was all I had at the beginning. And I started doing the same thing at home, just kind of, I guess, Fenestra kind of stuff to myself. And it was when I was walking, um, I had the idea of putting together some sort of a soap opera, like uh, have a little sort of a story where an episode comes out every month. Um, And that was really where it started. Um, It was just... It was just this sort of one narrative. Um, but then I started doing that on Twitter and that started getting a bit of a following thanks to a few very kind people who were sort of retweeting things. And it's just really grown from there. I, there are a number of things to that, I suppose. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that Lego seems to just have quite limitless potential to it. It's very interesting because that we think of, if you've gone back, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I think most people thought of Lego as just being purely a kid's toy. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't know. That that to me seems to to have been the case and that it's changed over time. But now there are a lot more things that people realize that you can do with it because it's so kind of malleable. Like you can shape it to what you want and do what you want with it. Like it allows you to have all these potential ways of utilizing it and it's very interesting just what people come up with and also I suppose as I was saying that it's it's also the case that I guess because it can be used in such a good visual way as well I don't know I don't know do you think there's something particular about Lego and the way that it can be used to, to educate that it's that it is quite a not a unique tool but quite a effective tool uh, yeah, uh, 100%. Um, so there's there's two things I'll say about that. One is that the Lego company, corporation, whatever you want to call them, um, 
are incredibly loose in what they'll allow people to do. In fact, they seem to get very, very excited about seeing how people use their product. Uh, you can imagine it, they could have very easily have gone in the other direction and said, no, look, this is our intellectual property and you just keep your hands off it. Um, but they don't do that at all. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's a huge strength for them. Um, the other thing is that there's just, I mean, it's just they, they've created this little miniature world um, and you've got all these characters and you can sort of pull them apart and you can make the character look like whatever you want it to look like. Uh, I've recently um, put out on the website um, a, a card game with 32 different Roman gods and it was just a matter of sort of taking all the pieces and putting them together and just trying to create sort of a little, you know, a little statue of each god and it's just so versatile. But then beyond that, you've got... Um, you know, all the little objects that they can hold in their, you know, <laughs> little claw-like hands. Um, so you've got like a pie, if you want a pie, or a bread, loaf of bread, um, or, you know, a magnifying glass. And when you're doing the sort of thing that I'm doing, where you're trying to sort of uh, match vocabulary to images, um, it, it's just very, very useful to be able to bring in all these real-world kind of items and have this real-world vocabulary reinforced by these items um, you've got a, a whole range of animals uh, i i can't think of anything else that you could use to do what i'm doing um, and this is sort of a, a secondary thought but right from the beginning when i started learning latin i wanted to write latin and i liked the idea of writing stories but i always wanted them to be illustrated and that was that's always been my challenge is how to illustrate them so I've played around. I don't know whether you've ever seen anything called Gilbo, but that was something I did a while back that used um, a South Park character generator. Mm. Um, but, you know, I can't draw. Um, and it was really realising, that moment when I realised that I could create very, you know, detailed and, and quite pleasant illustrations with a camera and some Lego pieces, uh, it just opened up this whole world where I could create illustrated material. And that's something that I, I don't really know how I could have done it without without Lego. Yeah, I suppose the thing about Lego is actually, maybe we don't always think about it in this, these terms, but I guess you could say it's quite expressive as well in a, in a, in a strange way, as you say, with, with a camera and just simply moving things like their arms and their legs. And I suppose you can change like faces and stuff as well. But no, you do actually have quite a wide range of... Uh, scenarios and particularly, as I say, almost emotions that you can present with Lego figures, even though, as I say, perhaps that's not something that we always think about. It suddenly reminds me of, I don't know if you ever came across uh, Robot Chicken, where they had the TV series. That, yes, yes. That, yeah, where they, they you'd basically just use all the action figures to do stuff. And, and you realise with that kind of stop motion element as well, uh, there's, there's so much that you can do with that. Do you think that this would have grown as much as it has if it hadn't been for social media, I guess? Because we often can't talk about social media on the podcast because you can't not do nowadays. It's it's become such a massive part of so many people's lives. And often we reflect on there are good sides to it and bad sides to it. But I guess in your case, it's almost entirely positive for the most part because, as I say, I mean, this is the sort of thing where Twitter and now I suppose Instagram are ideal platforms for sharing what you do yeah no the social media part of it is really important and it's also the most fun part of it got fairly active uh, communities around ligonium um you know if i post something where i've asked a little while ago i posted um 
I asked people to post a picture of their pets and write a little caption uh, in Latin about their pet. And I did that on, on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. And I have to collate them all, but I think there's probably something like about 80 responses um, to that. And that was a really fun couple of days going through and looking at all of those and reading their, you know, the little captions that went along with them. Um, I just find that there's some really wonderful, wonderful people uh, on Twitter as well. And, you know, you mentioned that there's the dark side of Twitter and there absolutely is. And occasionally when I'm scrolling through things, I'll wander into that part of Twitter and realise just how sort of frightening it is. Um, but it doesn't impinge on Ligonium at all. Touch wood, it hasn't yet. Everything there is is really sort of happy and positive and people's responses are always, uh, you know, cheery. And that's that's the answer. It, it wouldn't, no one would know about the website if it wasn't for the social media, I don't think. And now the the phenomenon, there's Legonium, has, has grown as well into, into a book as well, right? Yeah, I've got the book sitting here in front of me, actually. Um, and I'm just, <laughs> just looking at the cover as you were talking about how expressive all the figures are, and they, they all look pretty expressive. The story that's in the book was the original story, the original story that I started writing. Um, it was 12 episodes long. Uh, two of those episodes I actually filmed in that um, Nicholson Museum model that I was talking about. I had permission to go in there uh, after hours and take the sides down off the model and actually set up my figures in there and take some photos. So one of the characters, Claudia, who has a real interest in ancient history, um, she's a journalist by trade, but uh, she has a you know a curiosity for things ancient. Um, and as it turns out, she's the only character in the whole series that actually knows how to speak Latin. But she uh, went to Pompeii and that was a really fun sort of uh, month because I was posting a blog post every day as well about different things that were going on in Pompeii. Uh, she meets Mary Beard in the story. Hmm. Um, I had Mary Beard's permission to include her in there. So that was fun. And then right at the end, I decided that they should go back and there's a, I won't sort of spoil it, but there's a you know, chase across the rooftops of Pompeii <laughs> in the last chapter. Nice. <laughs> oh, just, God, yeah, I'd say the, uh, the things that you can do with Lego is just, it's just incredible. Going back to what you were saying a minute, actually, in terms of responses online. So you've just set up a photo competition as well on the website? Yeah, this is um, looking like it's going to be quite successful. Uh, I, I deliberately um, put a 10-day sort of window in which people can send in entries. So I haven't seen anything yet. It's the 21st or the 31st of October. Um, but I was looking the other day at uh, how much traffic had gone to the, the page where I've sort of got all the information about the photo competition. Um, and it's had over 1,200 hits. So I'm very, very excited and even a little bit nervous about just how many um, entries there's going to be. But I've got six great judges, um, well, five great judges and myself. Um, uh, so, we'll, we'll, we're, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what comes in. The idea is the person takes a photo uh, the entry is a photograph, and there's three categories. There is Roman mythology, Roman history, uh, or illustration of a Latin quote, uh, or you could write your own Latin sentence, just sort of captioning an image. I decided that I wouldn't make it just Lego. I didn't think that was particularly fair, um, but it's it's sort of a still life. So you've got to use sort of toys or items that you've got sitting around the house. I said no, pho no no photographs of animals or people because I just thought that kept things simpler. 
Uh, and I've got a couple of prizes um, for each category. Uh, the winner gets their choice. They can either take a copy of the book um, or the copy of the card game that I'm working on with uh, Laura Jenkinson Brown, who you had on the show not long ago, um, Bellum Sacrum. And so there's a, a choice of prizes and then one person uh, who we pick as the ultimate winner will we'll get both. I'm tempted to enter myself with my uh, Star Wars figures that have come out of their boxes now. <laughs> Please do. You were saying you were looking for something to do with them. <laughs> that would be yeah, great. A, you know, there's a whole, I don't know, Zeus and Hercules slash Luke and Darth Vader. You know, there's a whole I, I am your father thing going on there, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, no, it's fascinating, I think, because I suppose it's, it's a really interesting way as well of getting other people to think about doing essentially what you've been doing about using toys and objects to uh depict a scene to i suppose transmit a message and mainly to well i suppose a didactic fashion to teach people about teach people about like the ancient world and so you're using using these media of stuff that they have around them particularly toys because i mean the thing i've come to realize through teaching is that everybody learns in different ways some people can sit there and they can have for example a book of latin with an English translation and that's it. And there's no illustrations and they can just learn it that way. But for other people, their brains don't work that way. It's, it's very hard for people sometimes to not learn things or to learn things without them being illustrated. And I think particularly when you illustrate things with stuff that people relate to, which is, I suppose toys are a very important one because toys obviously have an emotional connection to them. Uh, also as well, I suppose there's also other connections like, taking Star Wars as the example, that the characters as well also have a connection or form connections in people's minds. So, yeah, no, I think it's a it's very interesting way of getting people to engage with that and start thinking about how, how they can do it. Because obviously you're doing it with Latin, but I don't think there's any real limit to what you could do. There's, there's a whole, any number of subjects that you could uh, approach teaching people about via using this kind of method. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think that the time will come when people will start doing it with other languages as well. Um, I'm surprised it hasn't happened more already uh, because, I, I mean, I would like to learn a language that way. If someone, uh, you know, took all the same pieces that I'm using because, you know, Lego does have a, a finite range of, you know, objects. Uh, if they were using exactly the same pieces I was using, but they were using them to teach Spanish or French or, you know, classical Greek or something, then I'd have a real entry into that because I already am familiar with the objects. I know the English word, I know the Latin word, and suddenly I'd be learning, you know, the same vocabulary in another language. I, I, I'd like to see a whole lot more of it. I hope it happens. Yeah, no, as I say, I imagine it will do. I mean, particularly as we say with the with the internet and social media, it's not going to be too difficult for somebody to start putting stuff out there uh, in that regard. I mean, that sort of thing. I suppose you say they might not be around at the moment, but something like that could grow very quickly, I guess, because the the avenues are there for people to to disseminate that information now, now so quickly. You mentioned the the card game is is a prize, which, as you say, you, you're doing with Laura Jenkinson, former former guest of the podcast. Could you talk a bit about that? What's that? What's that going to involve? What is? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it already, but uh, if you want to explain a bit further uh, what it is and and where the idea came from. Yeah, I'd love to. I've actually been writing about it quite a bit. Um, I've been keeping sort of a, a developer's diary um, on the the game's called Bellum Sacrum. And so if anyone wants to go and have a look, it's www.bellumsacrumgame.com. 
um, and I've been keeping this journal there. And the way it came about was that I had a class that I set a class assignment, which was to take an existing card game uh, called Star Realms, which is a, a fantastic game, and just sort of rebadge it all so that it was all ancient gods. So in Star Realms, you've got four factions um and then so what i did is I, I gave the four factions to the four different groups in the class and one faction which are called the blob in star realms uh i think were the monsters and then the other three factions became gods goddesses and heroes uh and they went away and they had to sort of look at the stats on each card and decide well this card's very very strong so i'll make that card you know, Jupiter, and this card has the ability to instantly kill another card, so I'll make that card, uh, you know, uh, Proserpina, for example. And when all this was done, I uh, had a look at what they'd produced, and it was pretty impressive. Obviously, it was, you know, completely protected by copyright, and there's nothing could be done with it. But I, I contacted uh, Laura Jenkinson, who now Laura Jenkinson-Brown. Uh, congratulations, Laura. Um to uh, ask if she was interested in doing illustrations. And she said, well, I don't want to do illustrations for a game that, you know, we can't do anything with. Um, but why don't you go away and come up with a game of your own? Which at the time I just sort of thought, well, you know, easier said than done. But it was, I'm glad she did because it stuck at the back of my head um, for, you know, more than a year. And one, uh, one you know, bright morning at three o'clock, uh, I sort of woke up in the middle of the night and I had a, like what, I, what has turned into a really great idea uh, for a game where you've got two teams of gods and one, one player sort of has one team, the other player has the other team. Um, the mythology behind it is that the gods are just a bit bored because, you know, there's not a lot to do as a god. And so they decide to have a, an afternoon battle every now and again uh, and you battle it out. Um, her artwork is uh, spectacular. Um, another friend of mine, Amber, has done the card design around the artwork um and uh with a friend phil um we've play tested it hours you know at least 100 hours i would say i've had students playing it and they've given feedback and so now it's this really fun really smooth kind of playing game and i could you know i couldn't be happier with it really um the next step is to sort of work out how to how to get it out you know amongst people and that's proving to be at least as much of a challenge as creating the game. Are you much of a kind of board game card man yourself? Is that something that you'd actually, is that is that in any way like a hobby or anything of yours in much the same way that Lego has gone from being, as you say, you started off like buying Star Wars Lego and then moving into the relationship with uh, Latin to make Legonium. Is is the, this something that's kind of come out of your own uh, interest or was it just simply a case of that you just tried the card game with the students and then you were like, oh, I can see where what I might be able to do with this. Uh, it is both. Um, I've got a, a good group of friends. We sort of tend to get away, um, go up into the Blue Mountains sort of four times a year or so and just spend a weekend playing board games. Uh, it is something that I really enjoy. And then I've got another mate who lives nearby and that's who I play Star Realms with. We play Star Realms pretty regularly. So I, I like gaming. Um, I always sort of, you know, sometimes I'll say to the students when they're getting frustrated at you know the rules of latin grammar you know I, I remind them about some of the card games that they play and how complicated the rules are you know for magic the gathering or something like that suggest to them that if they can understand how magic the gathering works they can probably get their head around the accusative um so i think playing games is good for the mind i think it's a good uh, educational exercise and i 
you know, I love the idea that through Bellum Sacrum, um, people who may not be familiar with mythology, it's just another entry point um, for them. And the, the, the beauty of the illustrations has, has just been um, a real plus there because anybody I show these cards to, the first thing they, they are drawn towards are the drawings. Mm. Do you think uh, the whole board gaming phenomenon has undergone a bit of a renaissance in the in recent years? Um, I don't know. I, I, it seems to me like it's become much like like so many things now, particularly because of the internet. It's become increasingly a more mainstream thing, or it's something that people have picked up a lot more on than perhaps they used to. I think you're right. I was in Melbourne last night. I flew down. Um, you know, I'm not a person who sort of whizzes around just for one night, but I did fly down to Melbourne to go to a games developers conference. And they were talking about just that, the fact that, you know, gaming is becoming more and more mainstream and people who, you know, five years ago wouldn't have thought about sitting down for a card game or a board game are quite happy to do it now. Uh, And there's also a huge amount of product. So I was talking to this fellow who runs a game shop up in Brisbane and he was saying that last year, uh, five and a half thousand new products got entered into their database. Um, the year before that, it was about four and a half thousand. The year before that, it was about three and a half thousand. Uh, and I can only imagine how many games are in development at the moment. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it's a bit of a golden age. Do you think as well, like the appeal of it is the social element of it? Because obviously, I mean, you know, computer games are massive, but I suppose computer games, even though you can obviously play them with other people, more often not net than not now, I suppose we either play them alone or we play them people online that we're not actually with. Do you think the appeal of board gaming and car games is that you kind of have to be there in person with people doing it? So it's a very social activity. I was just thinking in terms of what you were saying as well about using them as teaching tools, because then you have the students then have to have a conversation about it as well. It's not simply saying, here's something that you need to learn like transmitting from teacher to student, it's actually the students having a conversation amongst themselves. I agree with all of that. Um, I think that whenever we sit around a board game and we play sort of a range of board games, we'll play things that are pretty light and then we'll also play games that are, you know, really kind of strategically, you know, involved. Um, But it's always a good laugh. Um, There's always a bit of, you know, gentle ribbing goes on and and things like this. Um, And, it's an excuse to get together. It's an excuse to get together with friends. Um, I, I find that it doesn't get in the way of conversation. It kind of creates conversation. Um, so uh, that aspect of it, I, I really enjoy. Um, but, you know, it's, a, it's also a, a playing a game is like a puzzle. And I think a lot of us have brains that are kind of wired to enjoy, um, you know, s- sort of trying to solve puzzles and strategize and things like that. Um, with the students, it's it's really funny, you know. Bellum Sacrum is a two-player game. Uh, you know, you sit opposite the opponent and and you you play against them, and that's sort of how it was designed. And you know, one day if it's successful, maybe there'll be an expansion that makes it a four-player game. But at the moment, it's not. But I've got a class who they love playing it two against two, and so what they want to do is they don't want to play it on their own. They want to have a, a, a a buddy and they're looking at the cards together and they're talking about their strategy and then they're, they're playing it as a pair. And I really like that. I think that's a, a great way to sort of have competition and cooperation all going on at once. Do you find at all with a card game that people have a preferred side that they like to use? You say they're kind of split into two teams. Do you, is there a particular group that people 
prefer to use as their as their cards? There is. So when I invented the card game, um, the the original the original story behind it was that it was gods versus goddesses, um, because one of the things I really wanted to do when I was growing up, and I've written about this on the website as well. We used to play this superhero game, and it was I, I can't imagine what it did to our minds. But all of the male characters in this game were really, really strong, and all of the female characters were really, really weak. Um, and I think, yeah, obviously, you know, we all know now that that's, that's a terrible thing to do. Um, and I don't just mean physically weak either. I mean all of their stats are, like, way lower than the male characters, and all the male characters' stats are way higher. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, Bellum Sacrum didn't have any of that. And the, the simplest way was to have uh, each, each card sort of is in a duel, so you've got the Jupiter and Juno cards have exactly the same powers and, and stats, and the Diana and the Apollo cards are, are a pair. Um, Proserpina and Pluto, uh, Discordia and Bacchus make a nice little pair. And so that was that was the idea. And then a number of people commented that they really didn't like the idea of a, um, you know, sort of like a battle of the sexes kind of thing. Um, so that created sort of a, a challenge for me to go away and think about how I was going to sort of rejig it. As it turns out, um, it doesn't really matter if you divide the teams up other ways. So you could have sort of um, uh, Jupiter and Diana on one team um, and Juno and Apollo on the other. But it takes a little bit longer to split the cards that way. You can imagine as you're going through the cards and you're splitting them into the two teams, it's very easy to do visually based on gender. Um, and so the kids will often do that. Um, and I find that if you give the other player the choice of whether they want to play gods or goddesses, and I usually do because I'm, you know, it's my game, so I'm being polite, I would say 95% of the time they pick goddesses. One quick question, actually, I've got to ask about the card game. Is it just the main kind of pantheon of Roman gods or are there other deities from the Roman world in there? So there's 20 gods in total. So so all your favourites are kind of there. <laughs> um, some of the lesser... Known... Is, is, is Mithras in there at all? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, Mithras is not. <laughs> I feel terrible now. <laughs> Well, that's not um, one for the expansion. That's one for the, well, in terms of a paradigm, in terms of scholarship, I hate the idea of like, scare quotes, oriental cults, but you could have, uh, I suppose there you go, there's an idea for an expansion when you get Mithras and Isis and, you know, Magna Mater. And if you want to go as far as uh, Jehovah and uh, the, the Christian God coming in, then there you go. You could have a, yeah, a new faction coming in. <laughs> I love it. That sounds fantastic. The, f- the first expansion, if we get that far, is going to be um, sort of monsters of mythology. Oh, okay. uh, and so I'll make sure Mithras gets in the other one. But this other card game that I've, that I've got uh, where I made all the little Lego figures, um, there's an expansion coming out for that. I will make sure Mithras is included. I, I need to do that. I need to, have, uh, I need to get a little Lego set and make my own little Lego Mithras and put it in my office, I think, now. I've decided that. You can definitely get a Lego ball, I think, and make your own Phrygian cap and give him a cape and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, if you um, if you design it, I'll uh, make sure he appears in the uh, expansion for the card game. For the, not not for Bellum Sacrum, but for the other card game with the Lego figures. That that's a great idea. Good good collaboration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Gonna have too much Mithras. So, um, just take me back then. So, we've talked a lot about the use of Lego and how you presented this, and now the card game, etc. But what was it then? 
that drew you to to Latin? When did you get started actually engaging with Latin? And you know, what what was it about Latin? And I suppose by extension, the Roman world. Uh, how did you get involved in, in it? And how did you get drawn to it? It, um, it happened at university. Uh, I went to um, a high school that didn't have Latin. And for whatever reason, I wasn't even interested enough to take ancient history, which was offered. Uh, I didn't do any history past year 10. Um, I didn't do any languages past year 7. Um, so it really came out of left field. And I've told this story before, but it was uh, reading um, The Secret History by Donna Tart that just sort of made me see that there was this whole other interesting world that I could start exploring. Um, so I was, I was working at the time, and so I left my job and went back to university and started doing... Um, at first, ancient history, because you couldn't do Latin until second year. I had this wonderful lecturer, Tom Hillard, uh, who basically seemed to sort of live in two worlds. Um, on, on the Ligonian website and also on the Twitter, I'll post uh, when it's a Roman festival day. I'll, I'll make sure I sort of post something about that. And um, that sort of really goes back to Tom Hillard. He always knew what Roman festival it was and would always announce it at the beginning of every lecture. Uh, so he really brought that to life for me. And then in the second year, um, I had the opportunity to start uh, studying Latin. I, I just loved it. And maybe it was maybe it was because I'd never done a language before. I, I couldn't tell you exactly why. Um, I enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I did. It was a bit of a, a bit of a fluke. Um, I only read that book because I popped into a bookshop and the woman behind the counter recommended it. And so after I'd done the one year of Latin, which was all that you could do at Macquarie at that time, I just um, bought myself the Cambridge Latin course and just started reading that. Uh, went through that, read the Oxford. I was teaching by then, got myself a copy of Harris Potter and sort of worked my way through that. Uh, and then um, I don't know if you've seen those sort of fully parsed books. So you've got like fully parsed Cicero and fully parsed Virgil where You've got, I don't know, maybe 30 words on a page and then the rest of the page is all the footnotes. Um, yeah. Started exploring those. And then um, about 10 years ago, got a chance to actually teach Latin. And that was when I really started to learn it. There's nothing nothing quite like teaching, as you know, for learning something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, uh, when you start teaching things, you don't stop learning at the same time. As you say, you, you learn a lot as you go as well. And sometimes the, uh, the students teach you uh quite a number of things as well yeah i'll give you perspectives on it that you hadn't really thought about which i guess is kind of linking back to uh, things like the card game for example i suppose coming up with something like the card game and teaching as alongside that has given you the opportunity to test out i guess that you might not have otherwise it really has um and i've uh done a little bit of classical greek but not nearly as much as i'd like to and i've asked for the opportunity to teach a first year classical greek class next year uh, it may or may not happen depending on timetabling, but I just think that would be a great opportunity to start to explore that a bit more. And I just I just don't think I'd give it the time that it requires if I wasn't teaching it um, because, you know, I've got so much else going on, but this would this would be, you know, the perfect way to do it. Mm. I mean, what are your... Do you have any plans? Um, obviously, you've got the card game going on at the moment do you have any longer term plans or is it a case of you've just got everything that you've got at the moment and that that's what you're focused on i was just wondering because 
I guess one of the things I was wondering about was whether or not you uh, it was in the back of your mind at all to start moving towards ever doing anything in terms of animation with the uh, the Lego creating any short sort of films or anything like that. We've had the Lego movie, obviously. <laughs> nothing, nothing maybe on that scale. But in any case, is that something that you, you'd consider doing or do you have any other ideas for, for the future? I think with the animation, that would have to be collaboration. I, I, would, I would love to do that if someone else was interested enough in doing the actual animation side of it. Um, I played around with a little bit of animation as a kid and it's so time-consuming. Um, you know, the results are fantastic, but uh, I don't have either the skills or the time. So if someone else wanted to do that and, you know, I helped out with sort of the writing, that could be really fun. Um, I'm also working on season two of the story and that's been a, a bit of a slow journey. Uh, I think there are either four or five chapters online um, of season two. Um, and I'm, I, I don't know why it's taking so long. I think because I've been working on the lessons and, and the card games and things, but it's... Uh, I'm really interested in this story because two of the characters are, are getting married. Um, mm. I, I like that idea that it's going to end with a big wedding. Um, in the last episode I just put up, I call them episodes just because it's fun. Um, the last episode I put up, they got engaged. Um, and that was a really nice sort of moment. I read that with a, a couple of classes and they really enjoyed that. Do you actually get quite uh, invested in the character stories? You know, I really do. Um, yeah, <laughs> I kind of do. They've all kind of got this life of their own. And um, with the, I don't know whether you've seen the Ligonium Disco, but these are like little uh, you know, 70, sort of yeah, 70 slide lessons um, that they each just sort of teach one little uh, conversational um, dialogue. Uh, and so I get to pick which, you know, if I'm thinking oh, I want to introduce the vocative, uh, I want to sort of teach the vocative. Um, I get to sort of look at the characters that I've got and think, oh, well, if Marcellus was uh, in the garden painting, then surely everybody who walked past him would say hello and he would say hello back. Um, so that's a nice way of teaching the vocative. Um, one time I did something on the imperative and I thought, well, uh, there's, an, a, there's a woman who's an inventor and she builds robots so she can be ordering the robot around and, and stuff like that. So that, that part I really enjoy. And the cat... Um, Pico, who's a real favourite of mine, uh, in the book there's a whole chapter which is just a day in the life of Pico. Hmm. Uh, but he's named after um, a cat that uh, was my wife's when we when we first met, and unfortunately Pico uh, passed away a couple of days ago. Oh, a couple of sorry, a couple of years ago, and so um, he sort of lives on as this cat in the Vaganian <laughs> world. <laughs> That's a heck of a way to be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, just uh, as I say, uh, I mean, aside from the animation, then is there anything? Do you have any other ideas in the future, or is there anything you'd like to see more widely uh, emerge at all? Um, no, I guess um, I'd like to. I guess a few things that I'm working on now need a little bit of closure. You know, the game needs to run its course and. You know, do the Kickstarter campaign and fingers crossed that's a success and, you know, I can sort of step back from that for a while. I think season two of Ligonium deserves to be written. I think it's it's a nice story and I think it should go out there. Um, I've got to get back to the, the disco lessons. Uh, that's something that has sort of been on hold for a little while now. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I think that's probably, they're probably the three main things that I need to sort of be working on. 
yeah, that's that's probably enough um, for now. Um, I hope that's okay. Yeah, no, there's a lot of there's a lot of plates to be spinning there at the moment. So uh, yeah, you got your you got your well, a lot of plates to be spinning, and you got look you got a full plate as well, shall we say? Cool. Um, so uh, if people want to find you online, Lagonium.com is the main place to go. But you're on uh, social media as well, right? Yep. So uh, you can search Lagonium on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, on Instagram. Uh, there's the Lagonium.com website, as you said. Uh, there's Bellum Sacrum um, is on Facebook and Instagram um, and also the website www.bellumsacrum.com, bellumsacrumgame.com, uh, www.bellumsacrumgame.com. And if people are interested in seeing the uh, results of this photo competition, they should sort of jump on and start looking because uh, in a couple of weeks I'll be posting those and I think by the time this comes out there's probably a, enough time for someone to enter too if they wanted to they've got to the 31st of October mm. so yeah yeah so you got any ideas for uh, the Lagonium photo competition get them in get them in before the 31st of October yeah do so as I, I might be some excitement myself yeah got all those Star Wars figures got to do something with, it, with them <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to seeing your Star Wars figures yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really am <laughs> that I could do there but we'll, we, we shall see I didn't actually mention this but I, I will say in closing that I do actually right next to me in the office as we speak on top of my computer have a Lego Han Solo and a Lego Luke Skywalker for when they get their medals at the, at the end of uh, A New Hope so uh, they watch over me but uh, obviously there's no uh, no medal for Chewbacca <laughs> Poor Chewbacca I have to ask uh, which uh, Star Wars figure would you pick for Mithras? Oh, oh, Star Wars figure to represent Mithras. Oh man, that is a that's a hard one. Well, it's got to be someone youthful, so it's not going to be like somebody like the Emperor or anybody like that. It's got to be somebody pretty powerful. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say Anakin because that's a bit too obvious. I'm trying to think of uh, somebody else. Whew. I've stumped you. You have. I'm trying to think. That's that's a question to go away and ponder now. What's that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question just for people to think about overall. Maybe I should do a Twitter poll or something on it. How do what Star Wars character matches up with which uh, deity in the Roman world? Well, that's fun. Yeah, do that. Do that. Yeah. I'll jump on that. I'll, I'll I'll throw some ideas forward. That would be good. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to go away and think about. Yeah, oh, it's gonna it's going buzzing around my head for the rest of the day now. <laughs> the well, when you, when you come up with an answer, quickly send me an email and uh, let me know. Yeah, I would. <laughs> or better yeah. still, make that your entry. Uh, that would be even better. Yes, yes, actually, yeah. No, that, that's yeah. No, I could have. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't work. I was guess. Yeah, I can't have Princess Leia slaying Jabba the Hutt like Mithras the Bull. I don't know if that would work. Oh, that's but, fantastic. <laughs> so, Something along those lines, maybe, or, or maybe Luke Skywalker taking down the Rancor. There we go. There we go. That, that might do, actually. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> with, uh, I don't know, with some people from various people from Jabba's Palace, like around the outside. Oh, that's a cracking idea. Luke Skywalker taking down the Rancor, and then where well, you've got the other characters around the, the scene of Mithras slaying the ball, you just put in other people from uh, Jabba's Palace in it as well, like uh, have Boba Fett on one side and, I don't know, Lando on the other side, and, uh, I don't know the the weird kind of like singing people and stuff like that. Yeah, that's there. There we go. There we go. Sorted. <laughs>
You know, I saw um, two temples of Mithras on my uh, one trip to the UK. Uh, I, I went visited the one in London that's recently been reconstructed. Um, I heard you actually talking about, well, talking with Caroline Lawrence about the experience of going down into the, uh, under the street level down there. Um, but also up around Hadrian's Wall, there was like the remains of a quite a small little temple to Mithras. I don't know if there's a few of them or you... Carborough that you must have got? Is it the one that's, well, it must be because I think there's only one that's actually still uh, extant, but it's just sat in the middle of a field, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, there was, the altar was there and someone had put sort of a, like a bronze pot and there were a couple of loose coins in there Um, and a a pair of football tickets, which I thought was wonderful. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's the, there's a whole like fascinating study to be done there. And I think that's actually something I want to look into because people do go there apparently very often and leave stuff there. And I went there with a trip when I was at a conference in Durham and Richard Hingley, who's Professor Roman Archaeology at Durham, uh, he was talking about the temple and he was saying that apparently one time uh, the people who own the land, the farmers, whoever it is, uh, came there in the morning and they found that somebody had left a 3D, a small 3D model of the Mithraeum inside the Mithraeum. I don't think you could get much more meta than that. I don't know what they were trying to do with that, what sort of offering that was designed to be. But apparently people do leave some very strange stuff there, which is it's just fascinating in itself why people do that. Because um, people obviously, because it's not like you just rock up there and you're like, you've got something stuck in your pocket. You have to get there by car usually or take the Hadrian's Wall bus to get all the way out there. So people have to kind of pre-plan the stuff that they're going to drop off. So uh yeah, it's interesting. It's fascinating why people do that and uh, what it means. It is. Um, it could be a nice little collection if you had someone who sort of lived nearby and they could go in there once a week and just kind of collect it and pop it away. Uh, you'd end up with something really interesting there. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's an interesting study, actually. Something to bear in mind. I, I might go back to yeah. Well, it's one of the things, actually. I um, Part of me kind of wants to get away from Mithras in, in some respects because it becomes a little bit like when you're, I don't know, if you're a musician and everybody wants you to play the same album over and over again, like, and you can't record, you record new stuff and people just want to hear your old stuff. But it's kind of almost the gift that keeps on giving as well. There's so many different avenues to go down with it. I've mentioned before on the podcast, I uh, recently wrote a, an article, which I haven't sent off for publication yet, but I got really into how Rudyard Kipling uh, portrays Mithras in his, his stories and uh, um, what that, how that reflects his own, or reflects our understanding of uh, religion in the Roman world. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, as much as I, I try to part ways with him. He, uh, he, there's always new stuff that comes along where you think oh, that's interesting stuff to be done there. Where did that come from? Your interest in Mithras? It started off with me. I, I mean, I've always been interested in religion uh, in particular. Uh, if we go right back to, I suppose, the very first episode of the podcast, me and Ellen Swift spoke about this both both of us are people that were raised in a kind of a christian background but neither of us are particularly religious but um that kind of i think leaves an imprint on you where you're quite interested in religion particularly obviously a religion that orient originates out of the roman empire so that was religion religious aspect of the roman empire was something that always interested me uh and then i did my ma dissertation on cults in the port of ostia near rome and so there's about 16, 17, possibly even 18 now, uh, Mithraic temples that have been discovered there. So that obviously took up a big chunk of my dissertation. And then uh, I read an article, or I read a book about the end of the Mithras cult, which I then read a review of, and the review completely savaged the book and said at the end of it, 
that if you were on the lookout for a PhD topic, this was something to, to think about. Um, so I was like, right, I'll take that and, and ran with it. So, uh, so yeah, so it's, that's how it ended up coming about. And it just so happened that when I was, took a year out between my MA and my PhD and I was uh, working commercial archaeology and um, originally I was in Ferris Edmonds for quite a while working up there, but then I uh, got a job with Museum of London Archaeology, which incidentally was at the time they were hiring for people to work on the, uh, Walbrook site where the Mithraeum was and is now back in place so I worked on those excavations as well and then went off to Kent to do my PhD so but there was obviously quite a lot of uh, well there's quite a strong relationship with Mithras there with the the Bloomberg stuff so uh, yeah it just uh, it all kind of fell into place at the right time I suppose as well. <laughs> huh that's a great story. I like to think so. <laughs> yeah. I like it. How many uh Temples have you visited around the around the empire? Uh, not as many as I'd like to. In fact, actually, uh, the episode I did with Chaba last week that I recorded, uh, we talked about his recent visit to Rome, and he went to the Mithraeum near the Circus Maximus, which I haven't been into, but apparently is a really good one to go look at because, I mean, quite a number, of, there's many of them in Rome, but quite often you need permission to go in and see them. They're not really open to the public. Uh, and even if you email to try and get permission, they can be a bit, nope. I've I've seen most of the ones in Ostia and obviously I've been to Carver and London as well. London many, many times now. And uh, I've been to a few of them in places like Austria as well. Uh, well, the thing is with a lot of them now is they're not really there anymore. You have the finds from them. If you go to Carnuntum in Austria, there's a lot of Mithraic finds there, but none of the temples are still extant. Yeah, there's a few in Germany. Uh, in fact, in Germany, some of them, they've reconstructed them. And they've recently reconstructed one in Budapest as well. I've been to the ones in Budapest but before they did the reconstruction, but there's a bunch of them in Germany that I'd like to see, uh, but I still haven't got around to yet. But yeah, there's a few died around, but as I say, unfortunately, a lot of them aren't actually uh, preserved anymore now. I mean, it's like on Hadrian's Wall. Carver's the only one that still survives, although there was one of Rochester and Halsteads and uh, at least evidence for a few, some of them in a few other places. So uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's still a few to go. I Maybe I need to start drawing up a list and, and ticking them off. Yeah, mainly Germany is the place that I need to get to to see see more of them. Cool. Oh, I look forward to hearing about your trips around Germany. I mean, that's another thing to do. I think somebody, I did actually see this before. I don't know, uh, maybe it was another Twitter account, but it was uh, somebody did a, a Lego reconstruction of a Mithraic temple. This is going back a few years ago now, uh, which I was quite intrigued about. I might have to dig that out and see if I can find it on Twitter again. Yeah, I might try and find that as well. If you um, if you can find a picture and uh, tweet it, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet it out myself. Um... Because uh, it's whenever I find um, really great stuff that people have uh, made out of Lego that it's sort of based in the Roman world um, and pop it out there, uh, it, it's it's really great just sort of how supportive people are of, I don't know, what you said before about there's being something about Lego that just grabs people's attention and maybe brings back happy memories or just something innocent or friendly about it but yeah i think you're right i think uh there's something about it yeah Yeah. there's an intangible about lego there you go (laughs) (laughs) okay well we can uh we can call it there and uh, well thank you very much for doing this that was an absolute pleasure yeah no thank you um i enjoyed talking to you david it was a real joy anytime thanks a lot thanks wale Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. 
The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.